Here's what's going on this week at ALCF. Leadership has never been more important than it is today. We know that leadership matters. People have said that leadership is influence, and the good news is you have influence. Wherever you go, you have the ability to influence others and to make a difference through your leadership. But to get better as a leader, we have to invest in our own leadership, and I don't know any better event in the entire world to stretch our leadership than the Global Leadership Summit. In fact, this year, we have one of the best lineups in the history of the summit. We're gonna talk about negotiation, vision casting, building character, integrity, humility, about how to make our organizations better. If you haven't signed up yet for the 2019 Global Leadership Summit, now is the time to do it. Who knows how the world could be different when you get better? Because as leaders, we know that everyone wins when the leader gets better. Be sure to register at the contributor station after service or online at alcf.net forward slash GLS19. As part of our Vision 2020 campaign, we've put together some incredible short-term mission trips to three different locations, Mexico, the Philippines, and Zambia. Training for the Mexico trip began on August 11th, and for more information, go to alcf.net slash global missions, or go to the contributor station after service, where you can also pick up a bookmark and a Vision 2020 wristband. Men, be sure to sign up for A Man and His Marriage, part of 33 The Series, providing practical tools to help bring new life into your marriage and covering important topics including biblical foundation, servant leadership, friendships, threats, and sex. This six-part series takes place on Saturdays starting September 7th through October 12th from 8.30 to 10 a.m. in the Fellowship Hall. Don't miss our upcoming women's conference, Building a Firm Foundation. Sister Karen Loritz and her team will guide women of all ages through an inspirational day of impactful teaching, worship, and fellowship. This event takes place on Saturday, September 7th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. in the sanctuary. Women, if you've ever needed help deciding how to say yes and no in order to take better control of your life, get ready for Boundaries, an eight-week DVD series hosted by Beth Anslin and based on the best-selling book by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. This class will take place on Sundays starting August 11th through September 29th from 12.30 to 2 p.m. in Classroom 3. In the new Equipping Center class, The Foundations of Christian Life, Pastor Brian will help you develop a basic foundation for what it means to be a true follower of Christ. Join us starting August 20th through November 19th from 7 to 8 p.m. in Allies 1 for what promises to be a transformational experience. ALCF is partnering with Compassion Network on the Smart Start Backpack Drive, providing backpacks of much-needed school supplies to 60 homeless and low-income kids in the Bay Area. You can help by grabbing a bookmark from the contributor station or by going to alcf.net forward slash backpacks and placing filled backpacks in designated bins in the ALCF lobby from August 4th through the 11th. If you're new to Abundant Life and want to learn about our story, vision, and values, be sure to join Pastor Brian at our free guest luncheon, This Is ALCF. The event takes place on Sunday, August 25th from 12 to 1 p.m. in the chapel. To sign up for any of these upcoming events, go to alcf.net slash signups or check out the ALCF app. And remember, Abundant Life exists to make a better you for a better world. Let's pray. Father God, may that be the cry of our hearts this morning, whether we are on the mountaintop, whether we are in the valley, or whether we are somewhere in between, that you are always good. 
Even when it doesn't feel like it, God, in our hearts, let us affirm with our heads that you are good. We have given you our worship and we pray that it would have been pleasing in your sight. And now, God, we turn to hear from you. Pray that you would speak clearly to us in this moment. We pray, God, that as Moses' face shone after he met with you, that our faces would shine as we leave this place because we have been in your presence. I pray, God, that only you would be seen. I have nothing to offer except a few loaves and a few fishes. And I pray, God, you would take that and you would multiply it greatly so that your people are fed on the only thing that nourishes, which is your living word. We ask all of these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. How is everybody? Good. When, it, when service started, I was like, we may only have about 100 people here today, but you all are faithful and you came. And so we're, we're glad that you're here. You can clap. That's, that's great. You deserve, you deserve a clap. Um, so if I'm being honest with you, over the last number of weeks, I have felt a little bit like the sheriff of Nottingham running roughshod over the kingdom while the good king is away. I have good news. The good king is returning, which could be trouble for me. No. Uh, two weeks. Pastor Brian is back in two weeks. Uh, next week, we have the tremendous privilege of hearing from one of our own, Tiffany Miller. She preached in December, and she's going to bring the word again next week, uh, which we are so looking forward to. And then the week after that, Pastor Brian is back, and he is going to start a new series, which if I can just submit to you, it is going to be awesome. We are going to, uh, we're going to study the entire Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. The series is titled Impossibly Christian. You are not going to want to miss it. We will kick that series off two weeks from today with Pastor Brian's return. So with that, let's turn to God's word. Turn with me to Leviticus. Just kidding. <laughs> Maybe someday. Luke, turn with me to Luke. Luke chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 19. Luke 16, 19. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. 
And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If any of you had had the great fortune, and I mean that, the great fortune, to be in the vicinity of Northeast Ohio in early December of 1993, you would have been able to attend the Hudson Middle School's sixth grade performance of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And had you been able to attend that masterpiece of thespianism, you would have no doubt been overjoyed to learn that yours truly had been cast in the lead role. Ebenezer Scrooge himself. It was, it was both the pinnacle and the rock bottom of my acting career in one single moment. <laughs> and God bless us, everyone. Now, I know a lot of us are familiar with Dickens' most famous work, A Christmas Carol. It is the story of a guy named Ebenezer Scrooge. And Scrooge is just a wretched, mean, lonely, self-consumed man who is concerned with only one thing, and that is money. One Christmas Eve, Scrooge gets visited by three spirits or three ghosts. Each of those ghosts gives Ebenezer Scrooge the opportunity to almost from an out-of-body experience look at different aspects of his life. The first ghost that visits Ebenezer Scrooge is the ghost of Christmas past. And he shows Scrooge his young years as a boy in school. He shows him the early years of his career. He shows him the breakup of his engagement to the woman that he loved because he loved money more than her. And the message that the ghost of Christmas past gives to Ebenezer Scrooge is this. The things that you have done in your life leading up to this point are the reason that your life looks the way that it does today. The choices, the decisions, the actions you have made all throughout your life are the reason your life looks the way it does today, which is a lonely, miserable, poor excuse for human existence. We see in our text today the same message. Though there is no ghost of Christmas past, this rich man in our text, like Ebenezer Scrooge, has the opportunity to look back on his life and recognize that the way he lived it is the reason he finds himself in his present circumstances. The difference is Scrooge got a second chance. And what did he do? He made good on it. He changed. He turned his direction and we're told that the city had never known a better man than Ebenezer Scrooge. Unfortunately for the guy in our story, it's too late. He doesn't get a second chance. And based on what we learn about him as we're going to work through this passage, I suspect were he given a second chance, I'm not sure he would have changed that much. But that's just conjecture. I can't say that. I can't say that for sure. The theme we're looking at this year is Bay Area Lighthouses. It's our theme for the whole year. And this summer, we have been looking at what does it look like to live as people of light. We get that from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to study starting in two weeks. So again, don't miss it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying the primary way that the world is going to learn about who God is and his love for them is by people who have been adopted into God's family, shining the light for those around them to see it. We've looked at this mostly in positive ways. So far this summer, we've looked at examples of what does it look like to live as light. And here's something that we can emulate from scripture. We're going to flip that coin a little bit. uh, We're going to totally flip that coin today. And we're going to look at a negative example. We're going to look at what does it not look like to be light. I wanted to title this sermon, Don't Be That Guy. But I thought that might be a little bit too common. So I called it the, the bad neighbor. We find in this story the foil to Luke's story of the Good Samaritan, don't we? This is, this is the opposite. This is, how, this is what it looks like to be a bad neighbor. And the message that we're going to get ultimately from this text is that we are lights to the world around us when we love those outside of our body who are in need. If you remember three weeks ago, we looked at the early church in Acts. And the main point I tried to make was when we love each other inside this body well, that shines a light into the world outside. What we're going to look at today is the opposite side of that coin, which is when we love people outside of this body well, when we serve, when we actively and compassionately help those who have gotten bad things in this life, as our text describes it, we shine a light into the world. Tracking with me? Good. Now, the question that we need to ask, the question before us is, how are we doing at that? How are we doing at loving those who are in need around us? How are we doing at loving the Lazaruses that are at our gate? I've talked about this before in in past sermons, but one of the hardest things about preaching is that I spend all week just marinating in the text that we're going to go over on Sunday morning. And so all week I've been sitting in this text and my reaction to this text is what I suspect a lot of your reactions are, which is when we read this and we hear about this rich guy, we're just repulsed. Like he is awful, right? He's so gross, so uncaring, so unkind. And my reaction is I'm nothing like that guy. But the longer I've sat with this text, the more I've thought about it, the more I've reflected on it, the more God has impressed it on my heart the really hard truth that I've come to realize is I'm a lot more like this guy than I want to admit. I'm a lot more like the rich man in this text than I ever would be willing to admit. Because here's the thing. We all know Lazarus. Lazarus right now is at the gate of our country, probably separated from his kids, maybe in a cage, literally longing to eat the scraps that fall from our tables. Lazarus right now is at the gate of our city, living in an RV that is made for four people, and there are 10 in there on the side of a road with no plumbing and no running water, longing to eat the scraps that are falling from our table. Lazarus right now is at the gate of our neighborhood, probably under a tarp strung up between two trees, maybe in a tent, maybe with sores, maybe not but literally longing to eat the scraps that fall from our table. We see Lazarus every day. We have to walk past Lazarus every time we go into Phil's. Lazarus is our neighbor. And so just the the pregnant question I just want to let hang out there for maybe an awkward moment is, how are we doing at loving Lazarus, the Lazaruses that God has put in our lives? How are we doing at loving the Lazaruses that God has put in our lives? 
I know I can answer for myself and say the answer is not great. And so Beth and I literally this week have been talking about how we're going to do some things differently in our family. How are we going to change so that the truth of this scripture gets impressed not only on us, but on our children. And we actually live out what Jesus is calling us to do for those who are at our gate and in all kinds of need. The, the point of this text is that when we have been adopted into God's family, the love that he has shown to us will flow out of us to those who are around us. Now, after that, dep- that depressing thought, let's find some encouragement in the text. And I'm telling you, we're going to find it, though maybe not in the first point. So, first point is this. <laughs> uh, life is not fair. The first thing we see as we come to this text is that Jesus is communicating life is not fair. Look with me again at the first three verses of this text, verses 19, 20, and 21. We're told there that there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, Jesus is painting an incredibly stark contrast between these two guys. He is putting them on the complete opposite ends of the spectrum. So let's start with the rich man. We're told he's clothed in purple. Purple was literally the most expensive dye known to man in the ancient Near East. It was reserved pretty much for kings because they were the only ones who could afford it. This guy is head to toe Gucci and Versace every day. For the younger crowd, off-white and supreme, head to toe, every day. How is Lazarus dressed? Sores. Probably ulcers. It's probably not leprosy because he wouldn't have been allowed in society if it was leprosy. But the image is there. This guy is clothed in absolutely the finest stuff reserved for kings. Lazarus is covered in sores. He's laid at the gate. So what does that tell us about where the, the, the rich man lives? He's in a big house. If you had a gate, you lived in a mansion. And I want you to see how the verb is constructed. In Greek, it is a passive verb. It doesn't say Lazarus laid himself down at the gate. It says Lazarus was laid at the gate. So we can't be sure, but very likely he's disabled or crippled. And the verb that's used in Greek is the same word that means to throw. So he might have been laying down. He might have been thrown down at this guy's gate. And then finally, how does this guy eat? He feasts sumptuously every day. It's all organic, (laughs) grass-fed, delivered to his doorstep. (laughs) That term, feasted sumptuously, is the exact same language that Luke uses in the previous chapter to describe the feast that the prodigal son's dad throws for him. This is not just he eats nice every day. This is, for the average person, a -a once-in-a-lifetime party where the fatted calf is killed. And this guy is doing it every single day. And all Lazarus can do is look through the gate and see the leftovers being tossed in the trash and long to fill his stomach with them. And on top of that, if that's not bad enough, the cherry on top is the dogs are licking his sores. Now, this is not Fluffy and Fido from next door. These are the wild mongrel dogs, and they are not licking his sores to help them feel better. They are aggravating it. I just want you to feel the weight of the picture that Jesus is painting here, how pathetic it is. He cannot even keep the wild animals from licking his sores. This is not um, 
a drifter who's down on his luck and in between jobs and is camping out here for a couple of nights. This is the type of person, if you and I were to be walking down the street, we would cross to the other side, probably because of the stench. He is completely wretched and helpless. Jesus is painting an unbelievably stark picture between their positions in life. And what I want us to understand is how his original audience would have heard this. So we're told in the lead up to this parable that everybody's there. The Pharisees are there, his disciples are there, the sinners and the tax collectors are there. The whole fam is listening. When Jesus starts talking about this rich man, do you know what's going off in his listeners' heads? Blessed. This guy is blessed. To have that kind of money, to eat that kind of food, to live in that kind of house, he clearly has God's favor on his life. Conversely, you know what they start thinking when he starts talking about Lazarus? Cursed. This guy is cursed. All of that stuff that Jesus used to describe him is Old Testament curse language. They're like, clearly, remember John chapter 9, the story of the man born blind? Who sinned, this guy or his parents? That's what they're thinking about this guy. What did he do wrong to have such a horrible existence? Jesus is painting a picture in these first three verses that life is not fair. What's interesting, and I want us to note this, is he doesn't say why either one of them ended up in the position that they're at. He doesn't say that that the rich man was a good businessman or that he was a crooked businessman. He doesn't say that Lazarus did something wrong or he did something right. He doesn't tell us because he's making the point that sometimes people end up in positions and there's no reason for it. It's not what they deserved necessarily. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but life is not fair. I was listening to a sermon a few weeks ago and I know it's It's not great form as a preacher to use someone else's story, but I was so moved by this story that I I felt like I had to share it. Uh, He's a a fairly well-known preacher, very successful as far as pastors would go. He's written books that people actually read. He's invited to speak at conferences. He's invited to speak all over the world. And he was telling this story about how not that long ago, he was in his office going over emails And they were all just affirmations of his success. They were invitations to speak, invitations to preach. Let's make, let's do another book deal, so on and so forth. Someone from his staff came in and said, it's time for us to go to that funeral that we got to go to. So they went to the funeral. It was for a guy who wasn't in their church, but was connected to somebody in their church. And this pastor said that as he sat in that funeral, he started to realize that the man who had died was about the same age as him. They'd studied the same things in school. They were interested in the same things, history and theology. The guy who had died had wanted to go into ministry, just like this pastor went into ministry. But about the time this pastor was starting into ministry, the guy who had died was diagnosed with early onset multiple sclerosis. And the story of his funeral was that with the remaining years of his life, he ministered to the patients, the doctors, the nurses, and the families in every hospital, assisted living facility, and hospice care facility that he went to. He ended up going into ministry, just not in the way that he had hoped. And his ministry was one of total joy in the midst of complete suffering. And the pastor who's telling this story said that as he was sitting in this funeral, he felt God clearly say to him, that could have been you. That could have been you. And the other thing he said he heard God say was, and and in my kingdom, in my org chart, he ranks higher than you do. Life is not fair and sometimes we don't get what we deserve. I don't think I have to belabor this point that much longer. I think most of us in here can agree that life is not fair and that we don't sometimes get 
what we deserve. That could be any of us. That story about that pastor and that, and that guy who died could be, it could literally be any of us. And so for us, I think the first thing we need to take from this is let's not get too high on ourselves when we find some success in life. And let's not get too down on ourselves when we find some failure in life. Conversely, let's extend that grace to other people. When we someone who's found, see someone who's found great success in this life, let's not get too high on them. And we see someone who's down on their luck in life, let's not get too down on them. But here's the main takeaway I want us to take from the fact that life is not fair. What we, what, what's easy to miss as we start into this parable is that the rich guy and Lazarus, though completely opposite ends of the spectrum, they share something in common. They both are in need. One's need is just a lot easier to see than the other one. Lazarus had a ton of physical needs. The rich man needed salvation just like Lazarus did. So wherever we are in life, whatever our lot, whether great success or a Lazarus at the gate, we all are in need of salvation. Life is not fair, but we're all in the same boat. We all need something that we cannot do for ourselves. We need someone else to do it for us. So as we start into this passage, the first thing, the first point that Jesus makes is that life is not fair. The second thing that we're going to see is that God's value system is very different. Now, I recognize that might not even be a complete sentence. I had, I took a lot of time trying to figure out how to make it concise. I really wanted it to say something like, God's value system in his kingdom is totally different than the world's value system here. But that wouldn't have fit nicely on a slide. God's value system is totally, totally different. As we go back to the text, look at verses 22 and 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And what Jesus does in this moment, as he does so consistently in his teaching, is he, not literally, he figuratively pulls a hand grenade out of his back pocket, pulls the pin, and lobs it into the preconceived notions of the audience that is listening to him. Because they're thinking, this rich guy is so blessed. What an amazing life. This, this Lazarus guy is so cursed. And they both die. So the point we can take from that is death is coming for all of us. We could spend a lot of time on that, but we're not. They die and Jesus tells them that the, the poor man, Lazarus, is carried by angels to Abraham's side. There is like no higher honor if you are Jewish than to imagine angels escorting you to Abraham's side after death. And this rich guy who they are so sure is blessed, he ends up in hell. And so what has happened, the picture that Jesus is painting is that their lives have completely flipped. God's value system is completely upside down from the world's. The, the reference to Abraham's bosom, that, that is like the idea of sitting close to the head person at a feast. It's how John, the disciple, is described sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper. So there are scholars who think this is actually a picture of like the, the great feast in heaven. And Lazarus is feasting there while the rich man is now in anguish. And, and notice, notice what the rich man has to do to see Lazarus and Abraham. He has to raise his eyes. This guy who he had to look down to see every day at his gate, he now has to lift his eyes to see him. They have completely switched places. Now, let's move on. Verse 24. And he called out, 
Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish. I am in anguish in this flame. Lazarus is the only character in all of Jesus' parables who gets a name. Every parable that Jesus told, the only one who gets a name is Lazarus here in our story. Lazarus is a form of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means he whom God helps. I think Jesus was giving his listeners a clue when he named Lazarus, but I think he was doing something else. And we see it in this verse, and it's easy to miss. Do you notice how the rich man refers to Lazarus? By name. He doesn't say, Abraham, send that guy next to you. He doesn't say, send that poor guy who used to sit at my gate. He knows his name. And in doing so, he completely indicts himself because he knew him well enough to know his name, but clearly not well enough to actually help him out. Then in verse 25, we see Abraham says, Child, remember that in your life, you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Jesus is reiterating that life isn't fair and God's value system is completely different than the world's. In the 1800s, there was a, a very well-known philosopher and theologian. His name was Soren Kierkegaard. He wrote a parable about a jewelry store in a town. The story that he told was that this jewelry store was uh, broken into in the middle of the night by several robbers. But the robbers didn't steal anything. All they did was change the price tags. So they took the price tags off the really expensive stuff and they put it on the costume jewelry. And they took the bargain basement prices off of the costume jewelry and they put it on the really, really valuable stuff. And so all over town, women were walking around with $10,000 necklaces that they had paid 100 bucks for. And guys were walking around with watches they'd paid five grand for, but they were really worth 50 bucks. And his point is that is what has happened in our world. The devil has snuck in in the middle of the night and maybe he hasn't stolen anything, but he has changed the price tags on everything. So the things that we think look really valuable in God's kingdom are really cheap. And the things that we think are kind of cheap in God's kingdom are really valuable. So all over our world, all over this country, all over this peninsula, people are living life like they are really blinged out. But in reality, they are fabulously poor. And all over this world, there are people who look to our eyes like they are barely making it. And in God's eyes, they are fabulously, fabulously rich. God's value system is completely different from the world's. But here's what we got to address. We got to address the elephant in the room. Some of you haven't been listening. You're like, oh, what's he talking about? But for those who have, and those who are tracking with us on this parable, the question that, that is really kind of burning in our minds at this moment is this. So are you telling me that God's value system is that if you're poor, you go to heaven, and if you're rich, you go to hell? If you get good things in this life, you go to hell. If you get bad things in this life, you go to heaven. Because that's, that's kind of what it sounds like he's saying, isn't it? I'm glad you asked. Because the answer is no. 
And we find the key a little bit further down in the passage. We see this back and forth where he wants Lazarus to come uh, give him a drip of water. And again, side note, even in death, he still thinks Lazarus should serve him, right? Send Lazarus to serve me. But th- th- that's not the point we're trying to make. And Abraham says, it's not going to happen. We can't go to you. You can't come to us. And he says, well, at least send him to my family. So not so they can change their ways, so they don't have to go to hell. Send him to my family. And Abraham says, no, we can't do that. And he, he persists. And look what he says in verse 30. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will what? They will repent. They will repent. And in that, we find the key to the passage. I want to make this extremely, extremely clear. This rich guy did not go to hell because he was rich. He did not go to hell because he got good things in this life. He went there because like his brothers and sisters, he never repented in his life leading up to this moment. The, the, word, the, the re, word repent in Greek, it carries the idea of changing directions. It's the idea of turning from one thing to another. And so it would have been awesome if he had helped Lazarus out, wouldn't it? But that is not what would have gotten him into heaven. His repentance would have, and his help of Lazarus would have simply been the evidence of the change that had happened in his heart. God is not saying that if you're rich, you go to hell, and if you're poor, you go to heaven. He is saying that if you don't repent, there are consequences for those actions. The message of this passage is that what we do here matters. The exact same thing is true for us as true for this guy. We do not help those outside. We do not shine a light for those. We do not help those who are in need because we think that is going to earn us God's favor or that he will love us more. The only way that you or I or anyone else on this planet is going to get into heaven is by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. Our love of people who have received bad things in this life is not the basis for our salvation. It is the evidence. It is the natural outpouring. And what God is telling us is that I want you to love those who are in need because when you are in need, I loved you. So we see that life is not fair. We see that God's value system is very different. And then the message that Jesus gives through the rest of the parable is be a light now. Now, I know some of you who've been, who've been tracking and, and reading this are like, Gary, I don't see anything about light in that passage, so you're going to have to explain this one to me. And once again, I am gladly going to do that. If we look at verse 29, and then it's, we see the phrase repeated in verse 31, we see that Abraham tells him this. Speaking of the rich guy's family that's still back on earth, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. What's that all about? What is he talking about right there? Moses and the prophets was their Bible. It was the Hebrew Old Testament. The, the New Testament is happening in real time, right? As, as, this, as this story is going on, the New Testament is happening in real time. For those who are listening, their Bible was the Old Testament. It was the writing of, writings of Moses and the writings of the prophets. And we need to note that the, the word that's translated here in Greek, Moses says, let them hear them, that word can also mean obey. So this could easily say, they have the Bible, let them obey it. And what did Moses and the prophets say? Well, the, the, the theme is rampant 
through the Old Testament, through, the, through Moses, God said to his people, you are to care for the widow and the orphan and the exile and the sojourner. Because at one time you were all of those things and I cared for you. He tells them when you harvest your field, don't take all the crops. Leave a little bit around the edges so that those who are poor can come and get something to eat. And the message continued through the prophets. Do you remember two weeks ago we were in Isaiah? Do you remember what the, the message of Isaiah was? It's you haven't upheld your end of the covenant. You haven't been doing what you told me you would do when we agreed to this at Mount Sinai. And so all the consequences of that agreement are going to come upon you. When we get to Isaiah 58, and these guys had this scripture, the, the, the rich man and his family, they had this scripture. We get to Isaiah 58. The Israelites are crying. They're, they're, they're whining to God. They're saying, God, we're doing what you told us to do. We're fasting. Why aren't you honoring our fast? We're going to church. Have you seen my quiet times? The, conses- the consecutive streak of quiet times I'm on? Why are you not honoring it, God? Look at what he says in verse 3 of 58. The, the Israelites say, why have we fasted? And you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And God says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. He says, I'm not honoring it because you're doing it for yourself. The actions are there, but the heart is not. And then look what he says in just one of the most beautiful passages of the prophets. Starting in verse 6, God says, that's not the fast I want. He says this, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. And listen to what he says. How do you live as light? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of fingers and speaking wickedness, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. God is saying your light shines when you care for the Lazarus who I have put at your gate. No one says it better than our pastor, and I just love the way he puts it. This is core curriculum for the Christian life. It is not an elective. You can choose whether or not you want to take an elective and you will still get your degree. But things that are core curriculum, you have no choice. And what God is telling us is that I don't want you to love the Lazarus that is at your gate so that I'll love you more or that you'll get my favor. I want you to love the Lazarus who is at your gate because when you were laying at the gate covered in sores and helpless to defend yourself, I brought you in and I gave you food and I put clothes on your back and I put a roof over your head. And so what I have done for you you go and do for others. I read a, just a remarkable book this summer while we were away. It's called Mama Maggie. And it tells the story of an Egyptian woman named Maggie Gobran. She was raised in Cairo, uh, the daughter of a doctor. So raised in, in relative affluence, was highly educated. She had a tremendously successful career as a marketing executive there in Egypt. She transitioned that into a professorship 
at the American University in Cairo. She says, self-described, she wore expensive clothes, had a lot of jewelry and drove nice cars. And she and her husband would go to Europe for shopping trips. So um, one Easter with her church, she went on an outreach program to bring supplies and food to the garbage pickers in Cairo. They are the people who live in the slums, tens of thousands of people who live in abject poverty and try to stay alive by literally picking through Cairo's garbage dumps. She was wrecked by what she saw and she felt, she said she felt God clearly telling her, I want you to love these people. And so she did what this story literally describes and she turned her life upside down. She sold her clothes, she sold her jewelry. There's one part of the book where her husband says to her, like, I gave you that for our anniversary. Are you really going to sell it? And she tells him, you can buy it back from me. Here's what the jeweler's going to give me. If you want to keep it, you can pay me for it. <laughs> and for the last 25 years, she has run a ministry called Stephen's Children, which ministers to children and their families who live in the lowest of the low, poor slums in Egypt. Today, that ministry has 1,500 people working for it and they have impacted over 30,000 families that, who live in Cairo slums. I want you to hear how the author of that book describes his first meeting with Mama Maggie. I'm just gonna read it for you. It's better than me trying to describe it. He says, it was a bit hard to get my bearings. The stench of the slum had created more than just a physical reaction in me. It was depressing, oppressive. But here, though we were still in the slum, I felt that the heavy feeling of despair had evaporated. As I was still realizing this, Yusef put me into a line of people edging one by one toward a bench, a basin, and a water pump. There were small children covered with dust and dirt waiting in line, and me. I waited, watching what happened when the child in front of me had his turn. He sat on the bench and put his legs in the low basin. There was a lady dressed in white sitting on the other end of the bench. She turned on the spigot. Clean water flowed in a stream all over the child's filthy feet. She rubbed his toes with soap, lathering him up to his knees. He laughed, and she did too. Then she rinsed his feet and legs, put them in her own lap, covered by towels, and gently dried him off. I could barely hear what she whispered in his ear in Arabic. I love you. I am proud of you. You are a good boy. Then she took a pair of new clean sandals in a place where most children have no shoes at all and placed them on his feet. She kissed his feet tenderly, called him by name, and told him again that she loved him. He got up, a big smile on his face. As I examined the children, I realized that my medical bag did not have what these kids needed. What they needed was someone to hug them, talk to them, and play with them. Someone to give them the dignity of calling them by their name and tell them that they were loved. Mama Maggie saw Lazarus at her gate and did something about it. There is something in me, and, and I, I suspect I'm not the only one, there's something in me in reading this parable that just longs for it to go differently. There's something in me that wishes that the parable went like this. There was this fabulously rich man, and this really poor guy was laid at his gate. And the rich man saw him, and he brought him into his house, and he put a robe on him, and he cleaned him up, and he gave him food, and he told him that he was loved. Now, that parable is in, in the Bible, and it's the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we could compare and contrast it all day long. But that's how I want this story to go. And I want it to go that way because I am thinking about how someday I'm going to look back on my own life. Just like Scrooge, 
just like the rich man in this story, someday I am going to have the opportunity to look back on how I lived my life and how that has determined where I'm at in that moment. And the same is true for all of us. We're all going to have an opportunity to look back on our lives and see how what we have done has affected where we are in that moment. And when I look back on my life, I don't want to see a picture of the rich man who had gotten a bunch of good things and just kept them all for myself. I want to see a picture of me kissing filthy children's feet and telling someone who is told by the world they are, are unlovable that they are loved. And I don't want to see that because it will make me feel good about myself or because it will have gotten me into heaven. I want to see that because that is what God has done for me. And who am I to not turn around and give that to those who he has put in my life? Abundant life, let us not be like this rich man. Don't be that guy. We've got one shot at life and let's shine brightly while we are here. This is not, please hear the spirit that I'm about to say this in. This is not some backhanded behavior modification, guilt trip, um, sales job for our missions or our compassion and justice ministries here. But it is my dream that we would have a wait list for our missions trip to Mexico in a few weeks. It is my dream that we would have to run six of those trips a summer because we are, this is a body that is so desperate to pour out for others what God has given to us. Uh, Cheryl Degree runs our Compassion and Justice Ministries. We have a ministry to the homeless people that are here in our community. We have a ministry to the people who are in prison here in our community. We have a ministry to underprivileged youth here in our community on the peninsula. It is my dream that one day she will have so many volunteers, she doesn't know what to do with them. Because let's face it, for most of us, and not all of us, I understand that, but for most of us in the Bay Area, we have received good things in this life. And it is not just our privilege, it is our, it is our duty as God's children to hemorrhage those good things out to a community around us that is desperate to feel loved, sheltered, and fed. I want to look at just at, at one more verse in this passage as we get ready to finish. And I've lost my place. That would kill the mojo. We haven't even talked about probably what is the most shocking statement in the whole passage. If, if this were a play, you can just imagine as Jesus finishes it and he says, verse 31, even if someone comes back from the dead they wouldn't be convinced. And the lights go down and the curtain drops and everyone sits in silence. Because in this moment, Jesus is no longer talking about a fictional guy named Lazarus. In this moment, the parable becomes autobiographical because Jesus is talking about himself. He is the one who has come back from the dead and he is the one who can warn us about what is to come. The great irony of this passage is that the thing that the rich man most wants is that someone would go back from the dead to warn his family? We have. There is someone who has come back from the dead and his name is Jesus Christ and he is the son of God. He is God incarnate and he came to earth 2,000 years ago with one job and one job only and that was to pay the debt that our sin had accrued to God, the debt that we could never pay ourselves. He lived a perfect sinless life. He was murdered unjustly on a cross. And in that death, he died in our place. He paid the debt. He paid the penalty that we could have never 
paid to God. And God now sees us for those who are covered by that blood in the same way that he sees his beloved son. But that's not the end of the story because three days later he did what? He came back from the dead. He rose from the dead. And in doing so, he showed his power over sin and death forever. And the promise is, for those who will repent, for those who will change direction, for those who will turn from one thing to another and turn to Jesus Christ and say, I am not able to save myself. I am in need, regardless of where I am in life. I am in need of a savior. The promise is that we will join him in that resurrection. Abundant life, God is calling us to love the Lazarus at our gate, to sacrificially love the Lazarus at our gate, not so that we earn our salvation, not so that he loves us more or so that we get his favor. He is calling us to love the Lazarus at the gate because we were one time Lazarus at the gate, helpless to help ourselves, covered in sores. We couldn't even keep the wild animals off of us. And the king of the universe brought us inside the gate and he put a robe on us and he cleaned up our sores and he fed us and he said, you are loved. We shine our lights when we love those in our community who are in need, when we serve those who are in our community and who are in need. We shine our lights when we put clothes on people's backs, when we put food in their stomachs and roofs over their heads. Abundant life, we have one shot at this life. Let us shine our lights brightly. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that in this moment, the truth of this passage would sink deeply into our hearts and minds. And God, I I plead with you that it is not a guilt thing like, oh, I just need to change this one thing and I'll I'll be all good again. I pray that it would be, I, I pray that we would find inside of ourselves a desire to serve those who are in need because you have served us when we were in need. And it is only the natural outflow of a life that has been filled by your love. I thank you that you have given a lot of us good things. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see those who are in need and the courage to act and provide for their needs because then will our light shine like the noonday and shine like the dawn. We pray all these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.